Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we have another special guest joining us this week. So, Tamor, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, I am Tamor Hussain and I work at GameSpot.com. I'm the managing editor there and I hang out and do things, video game stuff at other places as well as uh, GameSpot, including Giant Bomb and Kind of Funny and I also stream on Twitch. Awesome. Um, yeah, and we have a, a history together, us three, in the UK press. That makes it sound yeah. like we killed someone. Yeah, we have killed. We have killed. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, funny actually. I was thinking on the way on the way back to my house to record this. To all, did we meet in New York City at that Namco Bandai event? And yeah, I think I insisted that we walk to the Flatiron Building, and I sold it to you as it's the Daily Bugle Building from the yeah. um, Spider-Man films. And um, I was one hundred percent on board from that point. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, and then it was a slightly too long a walk, and everyone was a bit. I think I like slightly frustrated by the end of it because it had been about twice as long as people thought it would take. I, yeah, but, um, I, I think me and you were the only people that were okay with it. Like I was because because we stopped at like Midtown Comics as well, right? At one point, yeah, um, yeah, it was my first time. That there, was like yeah. yeah, same. It was my first time there as well. But like we had both heard it was like a legendary comic book shop in the world, and the Namco Bandai. The actual trip was a bit rubbish. So <laughs> when you proposed that, I was like, hell yeah. This is good, and then like I think me and you were the were the only ones that were like well up for it. Everyone just kind of like tagged along. I can't even remember who else was there. It was just me and you in my mind. Like it was a nice romantic Aww. walk. Oh, me and you moment. going to a comic book shop. I think so, that right. was that that is my like prevailing memory of that trip. That's my fondest memory going to that comic book shop and hanging out with you because we bonded over comic books real quickly. Yeah, um, yeah, and then yeah, that was like I was like yeah, it's a good lad. I'm glad. Yeah, that's that's like a genuinely the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. It's like. Uh, <laughs> I like comics, so did he. He was a good lad. It's like that's it's peaked there, I think. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was a, a lot of fun. I remember walking through Central Park as well, and yeah, it was it was a good mm. a good trip for that reason. I think we went to Guy Fieri's restaurant um, these evenings. <laughs> yeah. You know, classy joint. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I brought you on this episode to talk about Batman tour. So mm-hmm. um, you know, what I guess like um, we'll we'll come to the Batman part of it a little bit later. But mm. I'm supposed to ask a little bit about your your career and how you got into games media what were the games you loved growing up and, and how did you end up writing about games for a living the games i loved growing up were like i think i was a a great devourer of games like i was galactus just with <laughs> games just um, i want it all and i tried pretty much everything and i played games that i probably shouldn't have played these days i wouldn't play because i'm an adult and i don't have the time but um i think there's like a few games that definitely amongst all that gluttony defined my tastes and like if I had to guess, if I had to summarize my personality into like different games I played over the years, like my earliest memory of my playing a console was a Super Nintendo and playing games like Mario, um, Mario World and Street Fighter 2 and Super Metroid, which is currently like it is and it will remain one of my favorite games of all time. And, you know, a whole bunch of I played pretty much every game super nintendo game my cousins could get their hands on um zombies ate my neighbors i played a bunch of the crusty super fun house games the simpsons games like anything and everything <laughs> i'll take it then my first console that i got myself was a mega drive or genesis or whatever you care about um and that was like where i got really obsessed with different kinds of games like i, I started playing fantasy star on that i believe it's golden axe and sonic was like the my thing i it but it was always kind of begrudging i always loved the nintendo super nintendo more but i settled for the sega mega drive um and every time i play a game i'd be like it's it's fine it's sonic is good but it's not mario mm-hmm. um and like the, 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. The major exception being I'll take Streets of Rage over Final Fight any day of the week, mainly yeah, because of yeah, music, Shiro's music. So then from there, it's kind of like I played a bunch of games like oh, the games that stand out in my mind like Counter-Strike was massive for me the Street Fighter franchise massive for me the Batman franchise all the Souls games they are huge for me and then you know I, was, I dipped my toes into certain MMOs like WoW here and there but I didn't get like hooked on them in the way in the way a lot of others did but yeah those are kind of like the big games for me Mass Effect is another one that I really love there's, there's a certain period where I feel like if you name a game from that period I probably will have played it which is much harder these days. But um, mm. I, I try everything. Like, there's very few... I think of the big exception is sports games where they're mainly simulation sports these days. Like, we don't have NBA jams anymore. We don't have SSX trickies anymore. And those were the sports games that worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was kind of, like, out, out of racing games for a while as well, where they were all leaning towards that same trend that sports have, where they were simulations mm. um, in the post-burnout age. But then Forza Horizon came along and kind of, like, found a really nice middle ground. So I dipped in and out of that franchise as well. So I play pretty much every genre apart from sports but that's sports genre's fault, not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I uh, I too only uh, indulge in fictional sports like Blitzball. So your career starts at CVG, right? How does um, how do you end up breaking into the industry? Oh man, that was I think a stroke of luck in a lot of ways. I'll say this is one of the things that I, I will say. Like we 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 all came, we all like have crossed paths with Future. I hated Future for so long when I was a kid. I would go to like my local uh, news agents and pick up a magazine and every damn magazine was future publishing um and i was like i can't and i couldn't get a job or an interview at a future so it was like i felt like i was being denied entry into the industry just because of the, this monopoly that this one publishing company had on all magazines and um obviously back then i wasn't really like there weren't a lot of as far as like the circulation in my local area there weren't a lot of imagine uh, magazines or anything like that and the internet was was non-existent for me i didn't have internet until quite late but i used to still read cfg i'd read games master games master was my main one that I, i'd pick up and then official playstation came out and then the official mags came out and then i started spreading out a bit more i was always a future kid but the moment i got internet everything changed for me and uh, the first website i always remember that i went to when i got internet access installed was gamespot.com and um just because i'd heard so much about it and i became obsessed with that website and from a young age i always wanted to write about games not professionally i just wanted to write about games it sounds kind of corny but these days we have that impulse where you watch or play something and you're just so excited about it that you want to talk to someone Mm. and you just turn and these days it's so easy to do that you just turn to your friend and you're like hey let's i played this game it's amazing xyz or you record a podcast you jump in a discord call or even you tweet it into oblivion and you get 100 replies or however many replies and you start a conversation quite easily back then for me at least it was hard to have that it wasn't a lot of my friends weren't into games in the way that i was there was one or two that i'd meet later on in life but when i was in primary school it was no one my cousins were my main source of like gaming interest and they they obviously i couldn't speak to them all the time like phones weren't <laughs> as readily available as they are now you had to have like credit and i didn't have credit and also, like, no diss against my cousins, but they weren't thinking about games in the same way that I was thinking about them. Like, they oh. were enjoying them and moving on. And that's what they were supposed to be. But, like, I was, like, really stuck on them. Like, I remember thinking about the Metroid title screen for literally days. 
days and days and days and like my cousin doesn't want to have a fucking conversation about metroid title screen for days like he just, he's he's moved on to the bit where you shoot the missiles or whatever not burning like, through no, that phone yeah, for it yeah exactly and um so i just started writing it down i just started writing like it was like became my diary entries where i just like spew my internal monologue about this thing that i liked really poorly onto a paper and then chuck it away and it was just like a it's just like a thing that I did to get it out of my mind and get through it. I kept doing that well into like my teenage and young adult years honestly. Like I kept writing and writing and writing and then eventually the the uh the internet came along and I was this disheveled, overweight, incredibly unhealthy, not looking after myself person. So I did what every person does and started a blog spot and called it The Hobo Gamer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just started writing bullshit about video games on that. And then I got like somehow like through a forum. I think it was a forum for an anime called Prince of Tennis. Oh, yeah. um, which is a, a great anime uh, and it's also completely ludicrous. Um, I met someone there who was like, who knew someone else who had like a uh, a video game website, really small one. And they were like, oh, we like, we're looking for writers and not paid whatsoever, but worked like just free writing. And I was like, I'm studying a law degree and it is boring as hell. And I still want to write about games. So I'm just going to start writing about games and I'll just chuck it into this random website. I don't really care what happens. It was just me speaking thoughts into the void which we do now on twitter um but back then that didn't exist unbeknownst to me through no planning or any sort of direction of my own i was basically putting together a portfolio on writing there mm. and eventually i plucked up the courage to like write in a reader mail to cvg i believe it was it was like one it wasn't ever a reader mail it was like hey send us a review of a game you like i think i did metal gear solid 2 and it got printed and i can't remember who it was uh but they sent me a copy a copy of a game a promo disc i remember i wouldn't know it was a promo disc until many years later when i got into <laughs> the industry but it was just this disc which had no art on it and it came in a jewel case and they sent me that as like a thank you you know give thank you for giving us content for free here's a here's a game and it was hulk ultimate destruction <laughs> Nice. which was which was a pretty decent game like it wasn't it, like especially when you're young you, like you could run up the wall and it had a good sense of like momentum and inertia on on hulk and i played that and i enjoyed it and i wrote another like reader review and sent that in and they printed that as well and then in return they sent me another game i think it was blood rain and <laughs> and i did that as well and i eventually it fell off i can't remember how many times i did that but it just became this unspoken thing where i'd send in a review and they just print it it was basically child labor if i'm honest yeah but, um, being paid but, in, in your next assignment which is odd. yeah exactly <laughs> but like that was enough for me to kind of get a taste for it and you know by then uh the timeline's all wonky in my head but like i i kind of like stopped doing that for a while and I focused on just other things like working at game while while my law degree was being withheld from me. So I went to university and got a degree in law, but there was some shenanigans with someone in my course like cheating um, oh. and writing a name, writing my name on their paper, um, which obviously caused some confusions. And my, my university was incompetent enough to not be able to figure out which tomorrow that spelt his name correctly might be the correct one and oh, which one man. that spelt it incorrectly could be the fake that's and, uh, wild. and they withheld my my law degree from me for about a year and a half oh, um and i was stuck in retail while doing that and that was like a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways because at the same time it gave me the opportunity to intern at GameSpot, 
and I interned at GameSpot. And at the same time, my friend from the site, like we met up in the uh, we met in the community blog section, uh, the user blogs of GameSpot. Daniel Dwyer moved to the UK. He moved to London. He literally moved like down the road from me, which was an incredible coincidence. And like I met with him, and we set up. A, he set up a little game uh, website called Citizen Game. And he wanted to do videos and stuff like that. Yeah, pretty good. It was originally called... Yeah, it was originally... So here's the thing with Citizen Game. We called it Citizen Game. Around the same time, there was a movie with Gerard Butler called Citizen Game coming out. And uh, there were some like rough problems around that where we were like, "Uh uh-oh, this could be a problem. And then eventually, before it came out, they changed the name of that to Gamer. Right. Right. You might remember that movie. It was god-awful. I think yeah. it was basically like Rock'em Sock'em Robots or some shit like that. But like after working with Danny and doing an internship, while I was do- having done that, um, which was like some of the most formative uh, work in, in, in my career, like it helped me really get my feet wet in so many different ways. If it wasn't for Danny, like I probably wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have any of the meager abilities that I have to do um, what I am now if it wasn't for mm. him. So I owe him my career, as well as a bunch of people from the future future days like honestly like this might sound a bit pandering but like matt for example i owe a lot to because matt commissioned me for a few nintendo articles here and there and that helped me get magazine experience like my, i think my first printed magazine experience was in o&m and it was oh. something that matt um asked me to do i can't even remember what it is i just remember doing it well it i'm was, glad <laughs> yeah yeah and so like and, and also like you know Tim, you remember Tim Bingham <laughs> from uh, CVG? He, yeah. he was like one of the people that hired me, and he remembered like uh, a few a few years later. He was like, he reminded me that I showed up in a oversized suit for an interview at a video game fucking uh, publication, and I was like <laughs> sweaty as fuck because I was massively overweight and nervous. And he was like really good about teaching me the basics of you know reporting. Those all they all contributed, but I think it's Danny and. Um, was one of the major ones to kind of like show me that I could make a go of it and it could be fun. And from there, that's where, while I was doing that and doing the internship, I did, I worked at um, Game and HMV and I did an internship as well. I, well, I wanted to be immersed in the world of video games as much as possible. Mm. And and that was a good way to do it. HMV was a wild place because I was serving in the in the video game department. And this guy shows up and he looks so familiar to me. And like, I, I kept looking at him and I was like, I know this guy. And he had a, he, he wasn't um, British. He was like a big guy, bearded, uh, really small glasses. He had like a, it sounded like a Spanish accent to me at that time. And was like very into games, like really wanted to talk about games. Mm. And I remember talking to him about games and he was like, oh, I like these kind of games. I like games that have like a sense of realism to them, but also a sense of fantastical. And eventually we got to the point where um, I recommended him a series called Metal Gear Solid. And he was like, "Okay, cool. This is amazing. I'll check it out. Never heard from the guy again. Realized who he was many, many uh, weeks later. It was Guillermo del Toro. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) holy shit. Uh, Wow. That was well. So you I'm set taking him on all his collision course. With I, I'm, take, I'm taking all credit for that. I'm taking every <laughs> bit of credit for that. He don't know I exist, but I, I remember it vividly because there was someone else there at the time um, with me. And uh, later on, I told him that guy is Guillermo del Toro, this director. And he was like, holy shit. Um, uh, yeah, so. Uh, and then, like, eventually, while I was at Game, I applied for CVG, and I got uh, hired at CVG, and I remember quitting at Game. I was a menace at Game, so I think they, they kind of, like, were 
eager to get rid of me. I used to like do the remember the game cleaning service where you'd go in there with your scratch discs, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'd be like it would resurface them, and they'll charge you like four pound or some shit like that. I used, I used to just do it for free. Like people would come in, I'd be like, no, oh, I'm, I'm not charging you. Yeah, I was a good menace. I'd also like, I'd also like, uh, they used to, I'm not, this isn't, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> this is totally incriminating, so I'm not going to do that one. <laughs> uh, we'll just stick with the Robin Hood of disc. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's me, that's me, yeah. That's good. That's a good narrative. All right, so um, I guess, uh, so, well, how do you end up going from, I guess like you were at CVG for a while, Mm. briefly leave games media and then you um you come back working for GameSpot. what's that whole journey like? yeah so that journey was really interesting so i think matt can attest to it as well like there was a time when cvg was being closed down it was the tail end of of that where i started really thinking about what i could do and what i should do and i remember being at the end of cvg and at the same time i'm trying to talk about this i'm going to say this in as much i want to say this but i mean it with as much sensitivity as possible given the context and the subject matter and the people who are involved in it gamergate was happening at the same time and it was incredibly disheartening to me and the reason i said that stuff before because it was just disheartening to me it genuinely hurt people within this industry and there were people being victimized and it was horrible it was a horrible thing to see happen Mm. and it really like shook my my faith in being here because it sounds really rough but like i wasn't loving the discussion i wasn't enjoying the discussion around games anymore it stopped mm. being about games it started being about drama points i'm not to minimize gamergate to a drama no, point no, no, it no, was sure. one of many things that happened everything that happened there to be clear was was horrible and i was vocal about you know all the awful things that were being well happening around then um but it was also i realized that it wasn't I wasn't excited about writing about games because no one was really talking about games in a big way. They were talking about developers and they were talking about the industry and they were talking about the kind of like day-to-day drama of it. It kind of coincided with Twitter and that kind of stuff. And I kind of had this moment where I was like, do I still want to do this? I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that, that unsureness was, it gave me pause and it led to a question of, do I have any other skills? And that worried me for a little bit. I was like, this video game thing was basically a dream come true. Mm. But it, it was, I also realized it was incredibly fickle at, at that time. And it could go away at any moment. The, the kind of um, the CVG closure, because CVG was a big deal in the UK. Uh, as you guys know, like, you know, it didn't hold a candle to the American sites, but we were pretty big fish, like, um, especially in the news news world. And, that kind of led me to the decision where I was going to go and look for something else for a while. So mm-hmm. I left and went to work at London Underground. A friend of mine who was already working there, he was a train driver, and he was like, they have openings if you want to go through the training process and the kind of like testing process. And I did that for a while, and I, I, went, I went there and I worked at London Underground. I worked shift work. I did early mornings, like 3 a.m. starts. And, and wow. uh, like it was, it was a hard, hard job. It was the kind of job where the long hours become visible on your face like you can right. see you can see your yourself deteriorating and and like i i counteracted that by you know eating better and sleeping as much as i could and and so it was fine but i also looked around and i spoke to a, and the thing about it i'll be perfectly honest was it was an incredibly well-paying job like extremely high paying because the, they know that you're basically not seeing sunlight for significant periods of the year you're getting <sighs> abuse from commuters constantly 
so they compensate you for that like they give you a decent wage um, yeah you're basically on a spiral basically a destructive spiral but they pay you so you have a good time on the way down um <laughs> so i i and i i really enjoyed like working there for a little bit but i started to speak to people and they were like i asked them like hey man uh, i know you're incredibly you know high paid but like what kind of pay cut would you take to enjoy the job that you that you're doing and it was really surprising to me um, because I was at that point in a stage where I was like, I could carry on do this forever, and um, I'd I'd be extremely well off. I'd be well I'd be well paid by it, mm-hmm. but I don't think I'd be happy. And that was my conundrum. Mm. So I kind of spoke to a lot of people, and I was like, How much of a pay cut would you take? And it was really shocking to me to see people say up to ten thousand pounds. People were like, mm. I would I would take a pay cut of ten grand if I knew I'd enjoy my job every day. And that once I heard that enough times, I was like. Okay, that kind of means that even the people here who are extremely high up wish they would enjoy their job. There's no point in this track where someone mm-hmm. goes, I love this. This is amazing. And most of the people who are working alongside me, I'm not saying there's no one that is there, but most of the people working alongside me were people who are in it for the money. And I really like spoke, thought about it. And I was like, I'm not in this for money. I want to enjoy what I want to do. As I made that kind of revelation to myself, someone from GameSpot contacted me and was like, hey, uh, we're looking for someone to join our UK team. You've been recommended. Would you be up for having an interview? And I was like, absolutely. Um, and I, got, like, I had an get interview. Get me out of these tunnels. Yeah, I, was, I literally had the interview on the threshold between the uh, underground station on the Victoria Line. I believe it was Pimlico and the road where there's just enough signal to have a phone call. <laughs> while i was on my shift so i had like earphones in and i had like a scarf over my neck because i couldn't get the time off to have it have an interview oh, wow. but by the end of it like they, i think it went pretty well <laughs> but <laughs> yeah um, they kind of called me up a week later and they were like we'd like to offer you the position and then i ended up at GameSpot, and i've been there since i started off as like a staff writer or something like that and then worked my way up to where i am now which is managing editor but yeah well, that's that- awesome man that scent is just, it's amazing. Like, it's so cool. Because I, I, I remember when you left CVG, mm. and I remember thinking, you know, not really knowing your situation or anything, but like, you know, what a shame. Like, there goes the guy who knows just a shit ton about games, loves writing about games, you know, disappointing that there isn't a, a decent, like, place for that at the moment. But now, mm. like, you know what a what a what an opportunity what a life you make the move from GameSpot UK to US at a certain point to what, mm. what led to that and what new challenges did that involve for you what led to it was kind of just the opportunity and i always wanted to work from the US office I, it's the office that i grew up seeing in GameSpot videos like i said earlier the first website that i went to was gamespot.com and they were ahead of the pack when it came to videos they were doing gameplay videos and before anyone else and they were doing let's play style stuff before anyone else and they were also doing behind the scenes stuff before anyone else like they'd have videos of jeff and brad and ryan and homer and a bunch of people you know just going to e3s or uh you know just showing off the office and i always desperately wanted to be there i always desperately wanted to work from that office and in my mind i was like i'd love to work from that office and it never was a thing that I really considered happening because I never saw myself living anywhere but in this country, um, in England. And it was only when I joined GameSpot where it started to become more of a thing that was plausible, but never possible. 
I was still in the UK team, and the UK team was very much treated like a satellite team for a long time. Um, it very quickly changed where we were kind of like, it became one big GameSpot team, which was great. But I kind of worked worked harder than I ever have worked anywhere in my life at those GameSpot UK years. Like, I came in and I just... I worked morning till night in a way that is incredibly unhealthy and I would not condone and I do not recommend. And I actively stop people that I manage from doing now because I know what it's the impulses like to do it. Mm. I started like working my way up to the point where people started listening to things I said and people started letting me review games and people started, you know, seeing that I was willing to learn. And over time, I got myself into a position where, you know, I, I ended up being the UK editor. And as the UK editor, that kind of put me in the same conversations as a lot of the people in the US mm. because I was managing an entire team, an entire office um, of people. And I say managing very loosely because the team there was incredibly talented and still is. And they required very little input from me. Like everyone knew exactly what they're doing. I was there to just kind of guide people. But then after a while, it was like what the managing editor for GameSpot in the US was leaving. They wanted to break off the news part of it and let someone else take care of that. And that came to me. So I became the head of news for global head of news for for GameSpot instead of just the UK um, editor. So at one point I was UK editor and global head of news. At a certain point, like it came became very obvious to me that I was like the head of news, but also out of lockstep with the news cycle Mm -hmm. Um, because it's very US focused, right? US centric. Everything happens on US time, unfortunately. And that kind of presented some weird challenges. I made it work for a real long time. But eventually, like uh, a lot of it, I also kind of have to, the decision to or the, the idea of moving over was something that got into my head before they actually offered it. Because uh, a colleague of mine, Lucy James, did the same thing mm-hmm. where like she kind of moved over to the States and um, her was working on the video team um, and was doing like amazing things there. And for me, I was like, huh, maybe that's something I could think about. As I started having those conversations, there was an E3 that we were at and I was presented with the idea and discussed it with my current manager. And they were like, yeah, let's make it happen. And the one thing I'll say about GameSpot is like, and CBS is they're incredibly, they were, they were and still are like very, very encouraging of trying to make forward and upward steps. And they will try and enable it as much as possible. Mm. So when I when I went to them and I was like, "Hey, would this be doable?" They were like, "Absolutely, we can make that happen." And it's trickier these days because of the world we're in. But like, yeah, um, that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of mentality they had. And <laughs> and yeah, the challenges for that were many. Um, I mean, like it was the first time I lived away from home because you know I'm I'm a Pakistani person. Um, South Asian culture is very much. It doesn't it doesn't treat like uh, adolescence and, you know, growing up in the same way that um, non South Asian culture does, where it's like, oh, you're you're a teenager now, you're going away to college, you leave home, you get your own apartment, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the other way for us, like the older you get. It's kind of like a South Asian culture treat is, treats it as like a reversal of responsibilities where you're born, your parents look after you up until you come of age. And when you come of age, you swap. You have to take care of your parents. And mm. stuff like moving away is not something that you would do. It's incredibly rare for a South Asian person to move out of their home um, unless they get married or you know have, start having their own family. 
so that was a big deal for me like i obviously i was always very independent and and but the entire time i was in the uk i lived with my parents and lived with my younger brother and sisters you know brothers and sister um and so that was a big deal for me like moving away to another country not only moving out but moving away um so that was a huge challenge for me and it wasn't something i was nervous about it was just something that it was kind of like you know when you even when you're confident about doing something doing it for the first time can be nerve-wracking and i got over there and um it was much easier than it would be for most people because i was incredibly familiar with all the people that i worked with who were very close friends as well as colleagues and i had a very uh strong safety net of people who could help me um, mm. they were they were perhaps more excited about having me over than i was excited <laughs> about being there they were like super super into it and they were like helping me out but the challenges were still the challenges you know like a new whole new environment mm. and when i felt like i really had my feet planted is when the uh lockdown shelter in place happened um mm. so i moved over it was a few months and then the lockdown happened and it was basically like i was stuck in a room for a year and a half and <laughs> which was not ideal um i did i have not seen any of that country i've not seen any of that city <laughs> i've just seen i saw like the the route from my apartment to the office and then the inside of my my room my apartment for about a year and a half <laughs> Oh, um, and then as that happened, as it was kind of easing off the, the kind of like the uh, California, very fortunately, was like has the, had the highest rate of vaccination. And as that kind of started to the vaccination became more prevalent and it started to feel a bit safer, I had to return to the UK for a visa thing. Um, so I've been living in America for close to two years. But it right. does not feel like I've lived in America for more than a month. <laughs> Do your story. I, I, I didn't know most of this about you, and so it's actually like genuinely illuminating to hear to hear your story. So um, <laughs> it's because I spend all my time just mouthing off on Twitter about bullshit. That's all. I do. <laughs> well, that's valuable content too. You know. But, um, one other thing I kind of wanted to mention on the career front is your um, message to the video games industry around mm. the events in Palestine this year. Uh, I thought that was, you know, illuminating in, in terms of like how you use your platform and how you think about the way streamers uh, use their platforms. Um, can you mm. say a little bit about uh, about kind of what led to that and how how you think about the way that streamers do use the, um, you know, the kind of like voices they have to reach their reach their audience? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm proud of most in, about the games industry, I, I say proud, but that makes me sound like I have some stake or I have some responsibility in making it happen. I absolutely don't have that the th but the thing that if someone asked me what where do you see the value or explain why video game streamers or video games are good I, the thing that i'd point to is the amount of charitable effort that streamers and gamers and that they get behind and the messages that they're able to push the sense of progress that people are making in social issues that are in in a large way the engine of that is the gaming industry and it's important to not like ignore the fact that of course, there are a very vocal group of people who are anti that and they do exist within games to act like they don't there. They're not there is like falling ourselves. They are there. But I think they're far outweighed by the people who are genuinely trying to do good in the industry and not just for video games, but for the wider world. And I watch people like the folks at Able Gamers or... You know, Alana Pierce is constantly doing massive uh, streams uh, that are charity focused. In the UK, there's like Black Girl Gamers, there's Mr. Midas who's doing stuff all the time that's like charity focused. And 
you know there's dr lupo who's massive and does charitable stuff even the big 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 streamers like the shrouds um they will do charitable stuff now and then and for me that was such an amazing thing to see and i think i got a you know really exposed to it around black lives matter i was in america at that time when the uh when all that stuff was going on and especially around the riots a lot of the rioting happened on my doorstep um uh, to the point where it was literally like outside my apartment people were gathering and 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 you know the riots were happening around then and it was amazing and stop asian uh aapi hate as well like um was another thing that happened around that time um and it was amazing to see the industry galvanize around it and do it in the face of criticism from quote-unquote gamers but mm. i don't treat them as gamers i think these are like agitators within the industry um and within the pastime but like in the face of that like they 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 were they did not care about that they did what they had something to say it was important to them and they said it and that was incredibly incredibly important to see happen for me and then e3 happened and gamespot as a team came together and everyone said hey we're about to do e3 this is the biggest thing of the year for us. We're going to have more eyes on us than ever. We don't think it's right to do E3 in the current day and age within what's going on without addressing it and doing something to help. And the the you know the subtext being we want to we want to do uh, a charitable effort around Black Lives Matter and uh, stop AAPI hate. And the fact that there was zero pushback on that was something that I could not believe. Like, we were a CBS company at the time, but there was no pushback. Everyone on the team immediately was like, yes, let's absolutely do this. Hmm. And we did it, and we raised a hell of a lot of money, and CBS um, also chucked in a lot of money. Like, I'm not a corporate shill, and <laughs> I, I got no love for corporations. But I will say, like, and CBS, you can find any number of issues with that company uh, easily. But the one thing I got to hold up my hand up and say is like, whether for PR move or whatever, they when when we came knocking, they opened their bank their bank account up and gave us a hell of a lot of money that we gave directly to these charities, mm. and that was important for me. And that kind of taught me the the it showed me the uh, the voice that the games industry can have. The the uh, the Palestinian effort, the thing that really kind of sparked that was when. Palestinians were being displaced, killed, um, brutalized by um, Israeli forces. It was one of the most horrific things I'd ever seen. And I was seeing footage and images from ground level. Um, I was seeing people talking about, you know, people who are like reporters saying, hey, our building, our, the, our workplace where we bring you the news of what's happening here was strategically destroyed. Mm. And I couldn't believe what was happening. And the thing that really struck me was how no one was saying anything. And it, mm. and I don't mean to compare, I, and I said in that video, I'm not here to compare one cause versus another cause. It was all, they're all valuable. But the people who are out there making a big deal about supporting Black Lives Matter and charitable efforts, whatever they may be, were just completely silent on it. It was not happening. And for me, that really, really struck a chord. And I couldn't believe it. And I took some time to think about it. And my conclusion wasn't that they suck or anything like that. My conclusion was they don't know. They just don't know about it. Mm. Because the conflict that this stuff was happening in between, it's decades old. Mm. 
It is mm. decades old. And the media, I'm going to sound like a bit of a kook, but like the media has a vested interest and has a history of making that conflict as complicated as possible to the point where the average person just tunes out of it. I, I, I have been thinking, I have been hearing about the Israel-Palestine conflict since I was a child. Like when I was a little kid living in a block of flats in East London, some of my most prevailing memories are news reports in the background of X things happening in Gaza, Y things happen in the West Bank, X mm. things happening to Palestinians. And it's always been there. And I'm someone who has, who has a bias. I'm a Muslim. As I said in that video, I made that bias clear. I, when I go to the mosque at the end of a prayer, when I was a kid, I would go all the time. At the end of a prayer, everyone puts their hands together and they pray, right? And there's always the, the one figure at the front who's leading the prayer. We call him the imam who would like say the prayer out loud um, over the speaker so everyone can hear it. And without fail, for 24 years of my life, it has always been praying there's always some element of his praying for the people of palestine to give them respite from what's happening to them since i was a child every Mm. every time i went to so the idea of thinking about the human impact on palestinians has always been there for me Mm. that is not the case for the majority of people Mm. that is only the case for me because my cultural and religious upbringing is enabled that so for me my thought was there are good people in this industry and there are people who want to help. They just do not know what's happening. And if they do, they've been trained to look away because it's confusing. They've been told it's far more complicated than they can ever imagine. And that is geopolitical. And there's X, Y, and Z thing that they need to consider. And for me, the reason I made that is because the video is I wanted to dispel that. And I want to tell those people, hey, this is happening. This has always been happening. And the reason you subconsciously look away is because of this it's because the media is trained to look to you to look away and i wanted to break it down as simple as possible and that was there were innocent people men women children who were being killed displaced by a force with a great deal of power over them that was sanctioned by a government and that's as simple as it needs to be i did my best to not take sides and I did my best not to paint one side as a villain over the other. There was a lot of people who were out there saying, you know, Israelis this, Israelis that. That was not my intent. I didn't want it that way because that that kind of is part of the mechanism that makes it confusing and charges mm-hmm. it in a way that you start to lose the human element of it. When it's one side versus the other, you start to it starts to become a bit like you start to feel like I don't want to wade in on this. For me, my message was like, these are just people. These are just people that are being killed. They need your help. And I, the other part of the message was, I know that you have the capacity to help because you did it before. And I know that you as streamers have these considerations that you have to think about, which is sponsors. Are you going to get demonetized? Are you going to get blowback from your audience? Are you going to get blowback from you know, big game companies? And I wanted to acknowledge that, but also point out the fact that that did not stop them before. It did not stop them with Black Lives Matter. It did not stop them with Stop AAPI Hate. It shouldn't stop them now because mm. there's, no, there's no difference in the causes there. It's just different people at a different part. It's just that these people exist in a place that you've been trained by media and entertainment to just think of as a battleground. 
and mm. as as a place, a theatre of war, a place that you know your movies and games and comics take place uh, in, but where the life of a human is disposable, and that was my main reason for doing that. And I think it it helped in a way that I feel good about. Um, I, my main goal was to just educate people and kind of help people not step away from that conversation. Mm. And I had some people reach out and be like, hey, I've, I've known this stuff my entire life. I've just never looked at it. And that is ultimately what I wanted out of it. Um, along the way, I, I decided like if I wanted to do something kind of meaningful in my own way and try and encourage other people, I was going to stream. So I streamed, I think, every day for I think it was a week or two raising money. And I raised, uh, I think it was like 30 to 40,000 pounds or dollars. Um, nice and it was it was and and that was just because that that's not me saying i did this thing that was me saying that is an example of me being right at the fact that this industry is full of amazing people it's Mm. full of people who want to help they just need to be told how when and where and this wasn't just random people it was people from the communities that know me people from random communities i had developers reach out I had developers, high-level executives from different companies reach out privately and be like, hey, I want to donate. Where can I do this? And a lot of them donated significant amounts of money. Wow. And that was me. Just, that, was, that was when it kind of like really struck home that, yes, this, this industry is a force for good. And it's an industry that's always keen to learn more. And they just mm. need to be pointed in the right direction. And it's, again, one of the things that keeps me here. Man, your uh, your story from like, you know, taking a phone call outside of London Underground Station to you know raising <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars for charity—that's just an amazing, an amazing journey you've been on there for sure. And now it's time to talk about a man who dresses up as a bat, or as I like to call it, a tone shift. How do I do this? It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> How do I navigate this as a host? I don't think I'm a total. I mean, I mean, like I can help you with that. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should just keep this bit in the podcast, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. that does the total shift. Okay, yeah, let's do that. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, then we're going to come back and talk about Batman, including ranking the Arkham, the Arkham games. I still don't think I quite pulled it off, but I think it'll do. <laughs> So, in this section, we're going to talk a bit about Batman, which is one of my specialist subjects, and Martin Wars as well. So, to what I thought we'd start with um, Batman as a character and what your history uh, with him is. Him, the property, whatever. That, you know, the whole Batman situation. <laughs> so, we're recording this episode just as Arkham City turns 10 years old, and writers Warner Brothers is about to reveal a new trailer for the Robert Pattinson film, The Batman, at DC's Fandom event. So, I was curious to hear about your connections to batman in terms of your favorite comics movies shows featuring the character what kind of brought you to the dance with the character mm, i think it was for like with a lot of people the animated series uh wasn't the major one for me it was i didn't have a lot of opportunity to buy comics when i was younger and so my entry point to batman was the tv show um and it was so so unlike any other tv show cartoon that was on the television at the time. I, I was like transfixed to it the moment I saw it for the first time. And it was just 
so well done and so like the, the world of gotham and the character as well like kevin conroy is still probably my favorite batman and mark hamill as joker and it completely captured my imagination and i primarily watched the tv show for or, or the animated series for for the longest time it wasn't until like many years later that i started getting into the comics and by then it was hmm I can't remember when I really, really got into it. But like by then, there was a massive backlog of Batman comics to kind of go through. It was around the time I started discovering... Oh, it was around the time I got the internet and found that there was ways to read comics and get comics that were quick and, let's just say, cheap. Um, <laughs> so I started doing that. and Batman would not approve. He, yeah, he probably wouldn't. How does he feel uh, about piracy? I don't know what Batman's policy is. I mean, is. I think I think it, it probably would it would be a no no, but also it's not really harming anyone as far as he's concerned. Like, I'm not <laughs> out in the street doing it. It's not a priority for him. Yeah, yeah, it's not a major one. He wouldn't hit me for it. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I got I got into the character through uh, through the series, but then like the comics are what really kind of because the comics explore explore the obviously they would because there's like years and years and years and years of them so reading through that it kind of helped me build a better picture of the character and his beliefs and his arcs and his his ethos and kind of his motivations and the way he operates in a in a way and i really i envied not envied but like i was inspired by him in a lot of ways um he's got this like single track mindedness that i wish i always wish i had and always wished i i was capable of like having and i got like so into thinking about the way he thinks and behaves that it kind of eventually had this big impact on my life that i just did not expect when i was working at cvg it was kind of early when i was working at cvg got got a job there i was as i mentioned earlier incredibly unhealthy and i ate a lot I ate because I, I was also quite depressed at the time and I used food as a coping mechanism and it had an impact on my weight and my body and I'd go to the doctor and the doctor was like you're incredibly unhealthy you are uh, you're at risk of diabetes and etc etc and despite having no diabetes in my family um, and it was kind of like a wake-up call for me and I wondered like how would I fix this? And I just didn't have the motivation to fix it. And at the same time, I was reading Batman comics and eventually it got to the point where I was like, realized like, I can just, I'm going to Bruce Wayne this shit. And I'm going <laughs> to Batman this shit. And I just, I just turned the idea of the question, what would Batman do into this mantra in my head where every decision, every moment of my life I operated based on the, that question. Before I had anything to eat, before I went anywhere, before I did anything, I asked myself, what would Batman do? And that kind of single, that question allowed me to kind of like carve out that single track, you know, single-mindedness track that he has <laughs> in, in his life, in the way that he approaches dealing with villainy and corruption and his never-ending quest for, you know, justice and i use that as this kind of like funnel into improving my life and at the same time i kind of fed it by continuously reading more batman and consuming more batman and i became like obsessed with it 
Like it was, I went, it went from a character that I liked to a character I loved to a character that I had an obsession with. And mm. during that process, I think I, I like, I lost like nine stone or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And like got much healthier than I'd ever been. And like I was running two hours a day. I was going to the gym twice a day, once in the morning at like 5 a.m. And once straight after work, I'd go in the morning and do like heavy weight lifting. And then in the evening, I'd like run for two hours every day. I ate nothing but like two slices or three slices of brown bread and a tin of baked beans for maybe a year every meal. <laughs> Um, wow, just God. to minimize uh, like my is that what Batman out. eats? I don't think so. I think <laughs> he has okay. a proper. Meal. I don't think he eats very much at all, honestly. So yeah, it I, makes you really I don't think... really see him as an eater. Yeah, I mean, he was incredibly unhealthy. It was very bad. But like at that point, I was like, I need to simplify everything so that I don't give myself any points of failure, potential points of failure. And I realized that if I just eat this one thing. I won't have to worry about counting calories. I know exactly how much is in this, and it's just the bare minimum. It's like a little bit of carbohydrate, some bare essential proteins. And it's not good. I do not recommend it, but it's what I did. And eventually it got me to a place where I was in a much better position health-wise, and I could like start eating relatively normal food again. And I also applied that to my career. It was like, how do I get through what I get to where I need to be and what do I need to do that? And every decision I made along the way was what would Batman do? And the fact that I, like I said before, the entire time I was reading, I was watching Batman, I was listening to Batman stuff, whatever it's Batman podcast, it was, you know, comic books, it was animated shows, it was, I was even drawing Batman for a significant period of time. I was that obsessed. And I'm <laughs> still very much like that. What were the um, your favorite kind of comics or graphic novels along the way? What, which kind of creators stuck with you? Ah, uh, I mean, like the the this it's it's the usual ones that everyone mentions, right? Hush, um, mm. it's uh, Long Halloween, it's the recent Scott Snyder stuff. There was some a couple of arcs that, like, I think Tomasi did, and mm, it's Batman uh, and Robin stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then uh, obviously the uh, the Grant Morrison stuff is my my big thing. Uh, yeah, I love. I know you. I know you're a fan of it as well, Sam. Yeah. yeah, that was like um, there are like two ages of Batman comics for me. It's like before Morrison and after Morrison, where it is like you say, it's reading all the touchstones, like the Frank Miller stuff. Obviously, he's a very contentious creator these days, and mm. then like um, leading you into more of the modern stuff, like Hush and you know uh, Dark uh, Dark Victory is a, a long Halloween sequel, and yeah, Scott Snyder stuff and all that sort of thing. But the the Grant Morrison run. The whole ethos of it, I think, is it essentially posits that everything that's ever happened to Batman, like in the 60s series, all of the different like stuff he's been through, all happened implausibly in this one man's life and mm. has shaped the kind of perfect Batman and <laughs> wasn't afraid to lean into that sort of tonal variance across that multi-year run. Is that what you liked about it as well? Yeah, it was. I think it was the challenge. Like, I, I always, whenever I read it, I think about it from Grant Morrison's perspective. Clearly come into this and gone, I'm going to make all of this nonsense make sense. And I'm going to make it, I'm going to weave it into one ongoing story, which is just a the most foolish task, but, like, does it. And it goes places, and... It definitely is weird throughout it, but by the time you're done, like you're like, that was really good. I really enjoyed that. And 
some of my favorite moments from Batman history are from that arc and the fact that it's been so influential in Batman mythos going forward is also a hell of a thing in doing so created one of the coolest uh, narrative arcs in in comic history yeah I mean Damian Wayne is a heck of a legacy to oh, yeah. believe oh yes yeah, so yeah. He's, he's easily my favorite Robin and yeah I, I like all the others but like Damian Wayne is just I think a cut above the rest he's got a unique perspective which is something the others have to a degree but like he's coupled with his attitude and his his brashness and this entitlement that he has and also the arc that he goes on he's my favorite robin easily yeah he's just a lovable little bastard i thought yeah. what they did with um you know switching uh killing off bruce wayne in order to have um dick grayson batman and damien damien wayne robin that could have just ran for years and years i think it was just such a great yeah. template for batman's future i'm always sad they kind of you know went back on it i guess it's inevitable in comics right but um yeah but yeah yeah um, I, I i love that era of uh dick grayson damian wayne batman and robin and it's, it looks so different as well from the batman you're used to as well um especially the covers i like still flick through those covers every now and then and mm. they are they are iconic in my mind and there's also that stuff of you know bat cow and and, and like <laughs> weird shit that happens along the way yeah when he starts recruiting all the different batman in uh, batman in um batman yeah. inc and yeah. then um it's like one issue where he goes into the internet to fight like a virus or something, mm-hmm. and it's just um, <laughs> what? yeah, <laughs> it's wild. It's wild, and yeah, I, I highly. The, the other thing about it is like it's such a weird, like the journey to read that entire arc and read anything relevant to it is mm. kind of mirrored in the journey that Batman goes on within the narrative itself. Because it's like finding broken pieces of these stories and trying to connect them together in a way that feels like cohesive right like you have to go back years and years and years to read everything relevant to grant morrison's arc i remember reading uh looking at a like a um essential reading or the complete reading list for it and it was like a black case book they put out with all the old 50s issues yeah 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 and like this i remember like reading the the forums and it would be like you need to read this issue because there's one line of dialogue that makes that is relevant <laughs> and i'm like what the f-? but like to find that issue in the modern day it's like close to impossible not even places like comiXology or like dc's own digital services have them so like i remember the the task of piecing the entire thing together buying them finding them online asking friends if they have them it's that same kind of like broken disjointed time traveling arc that batman goes on throughout the grant morrison's arc but by the time i'd done it when i read it front to back i was like this is incredible and in the same way like you go from batman at the start to the dark side stuff and ending to where it finishes off you're like holy shit it's it's the same kind of madness he's going through (laughs) Yeah, I think the symbol of like Talia's group in the book is like a snake that eats itself, and then the story ends exactly as it begins. I yeah. think in terms of like him going off with Jim Gordon to stop a crime, and it's like talking about comics themselves. Yeah. It's just <laughs> it's such <laughs> just, a good thing. Yeah. I, I wish they would collect the entire thing as like a Morrison complete, like relevant to Morrison's arc thing. I would buy that in an instant. Yeah, it's quite hard to follow otherwise. But um, yeah, yeah I, w- I would say that's the most rewarding comics journey I've been on. What about on-screen uh, uh, sort of Batman? Uh, who's your kind of favourite of the live-action ones? Uh, of the live-action ones? I I really like those Nolan movies a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Dark Knight being my favourite of the bunch. But Begins is also incredibly good. I rewatched it recently and I like it every, more every time I watch it. The, final... the, last, the last 20 minutes are a bit rough, I think. Yeah, it's kind like of weird. Like, uh, we've got to stop the fear gas from exploding. 
And there's yeah. like a man who says that every two minutes just in case you lose track of the plot. He goes, if this thing explodes, everyone's getting figured. And we're like, yeah, we know, man. Yeah, like, we're on it. We're on it, mate. Um, and then Rises is kind of like, I've only seen that a couple of times and I, I didn't enjoy it as much either time. Maybe if I went back to it now, maybe I'd enjoy it. But I think that's like that at the bottom of the rung for mm. me. I was really, really, I like Bale as Batman. I don't think he's the best but it has some moments that i just like i i watch clips of them in youtube and it almost brings me to tears like and they are these batman moments like the one that it always has is you know when bruce is uh in in his uh aircraft and he's just he wants to tell gordon that he is batman but does it in a roundabout way where he's like you know sometimes a hero is a, a police officer that puts a coat on on a child who's just lost their family or something like that and and then flies off and then it stops for a beat and slowly zooms in on Gordon's face as he realizes who Batman is. And every time that happens, it sends like shivers down my body. Like, <laughs> I, like I cannot watch that without close to coming to close to tears. So like mm. those movies definitely have a place for me. And when like Rachel realizes who Bruce is and like when she when he kind of like does the same thing the roundabout reveal of who who he is and then he jumps off the the roof and she like steps towards the camera and just whispers bruce that will get me every single time <laughs> so there's moments in those in those movies that i really really love um mm. but I, I i i wouldn't say that he bale is my favorite batman i'm really sad at what happened to ben affleck i mm. think he had a lot of potential I think that he could have been one of the coolest Batmans ever. He just got sad for me. He got saddled with material that was just not good. Um, mm. And uh, some people love that stuff. More power to you. I'm glad you enjoy it. It just didn't work for me at all. Um, especially when it came to Batman as a character, it didn't work for me. Whether that's BVS or Justice League or any of that stuff. And uh, I'm excited. I'm really excited for Robert Pattinson as uh, mm. as Batman. So if I had to pick an on-screen Batman on a technicality, it's going to be Kevin Conroy. Technically, that Batman is on screen, even though he's on a voice, a voice only. Um, but yeah, he's he's going to be my favorite. Matthew, how about you? What's your relationship with um, with Batman on the screen? I feel like that's probably where most of your sort of um, yeah. Ex- yeah interactions. My, yeah, my dad's a big comics guy. Weirdly, um, which when I was like. 12 13 you went through a period of just opening a cupboard and finding like all this batman stuff and being like not is my dad batman (laughs) 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 but you open it and you're like oh you know i I read the i remember reading like the storylines about you know bane breaking his back and all that stuff but yeah obviously haven't followed the comics as much as you guys yeah i I love the films you know i love the character i think it's super iconic um i think he is the best villains as well which is really important I like the Bale. I like the Bale stuff. I just think everyone in it's super classy. I really, really like um, Gary Oldman in the second film. Mm. I think like he sort of secretly it's, it's sort of secret weapon because it's kind of more about him. You know, he's the only person in it who isn't like a super villain or a superhero, and sort of how he deals with it and kind of comes out the other end of it. I think is super interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like it. And I liked. I don't know when I was a kid, and I I still enjoyed all the stupid, the silly garish 90s batmans you know <laughs> oh yeah i mean you know and obviously the keaton batman is um fantastic too i think yeah if there's keaton's, one thing that... keaton's overshadowed by nicholson though in that first one 
Like I, it, it's 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 a it's a Joker film more than a Batman film, which is dumb because I think he's actually cool. Yeah, but it, it, Batman Returns even more so as well. That's a villain film where Batman's mm. like the third or maybe fourth main character behind mm. Christopher Walken. Yeah, it's kind of weird how he gets overshadowed sometimes. Even in The Dark Knight, you could argue that he's not necessarily got all the focus when you got mm. Harvey Dent yeah. and stuff. But um, yeah, it's weird. Absolutely. It's weird. I really don't think much about those like earlier movies, like the uh, the ones that you're referencing there. Like I. I just don't think about them. Like, I don't have a fondness for them. I know I've watched all of them, but they just don't stick out in my mind. And I think it does come down to, like, I think I'm a, a more of a child of the edgier Batman, if you know what I mean. The darker mm. kind of, like, um, Dark Knight, uh, Jim Lee era kind of Batman. So the the Batman and uh, Robin TV show, for example, is something that I don't really think about as being a formative part of my my Batman experience, and the same goes for a lot of the uh, the other Batman movies, the Tim Burton stuff and Joel yeah. Schumacher stuff, um, I, I which is weird. I think that's where I first encountered it, and then I think the surprise of like finding you know these comics that my dad had was like, oh, this is actually quite different. Like this, you know, there's some really scary stuff. There's the one of the uh, is there like a standalone Arkham thing that's like a horror story? It's like super unnerving art. Um, yeah. yeah, Arkham I wanna, Asylum, I think it is. Yeah, I want to say it's yeah. just called Arkham Asylum, like that, and thinking like, wait a second, this isn't this isn't the Batman I know and love. Mm. <laughs> um, so I guess, and that's probably a good uh, transition point to talk about the Arkham games. Um, so the Rocksteady games they start in 2009 with Arkham Asylum. I had no expectations that first game. Then it kind of um, it kind of blew me away. Um, mm. To well, why were the Rocksteady games so significant in the kind of um, the canon of Batman fiction as well as games in general? I think it was significant because it's exactly what you said. No one expected anything from them. Like, in fact, I think everyone expected them to be crap, um, just because that was the way licensed games were. Right? Like, there were very few licensed games that you could say were genuinely good. The most you'd expect for them is competency, and for them to hold your attention for a few hours. You never expected one to come out and be like, "No, this is a one of the definitive Batman stories told." And this is like the now the bar for not only superhero games, but many video games. Mm. And you definitely wouldn't expect like design principles implemented in them to go on to influence games as a whole in the way that the Arkham franchise did. But on top of that, I think like the important thing is that like, you could tell that they came from a place of love and authenticity. Um, I think that's the thing that really struck me with uh, the first one, which was... Everyone says it, oh, you know, you can tell that these developers were fans of this source material, but no, you could really feel it in this one. And mm. it was like everything from the casting decisions of having Conroy and Hamill back to like the actual fact that Dini was working on it. Um, and then the story and characterization was like just nail on. It did not feel like anyone who like was involved with this game like everyone who was involved in this game knew batman as well as i did or as and was as passionate about it as all the millions of fans around the world and i think that's kind of why it was important it's a mixture of doing right by it and then also doing right by gaming in terms of not just being like his man punches stuff side scrolling beat him up whatever it was like they really went for it with the with the stealth and the the free flow combat and that is what, like, it, it was basically, like, you have no choice but to pay attention to this game. Because if you're not a fan of Batman, 
there's reasons for it from a game design and game mechanic and game programming and art perspective that you need to take it seriously mm-hmm. and if you don't care about that stuff you but you're a batman fan it was like this is real big shit it's like stories being told with characters that you know using them in ways that you've never seen before but also doing it with authenticity and a way that kind of acknowledges that you what you know about them and how much you care about them yeah for sure matthew reflecting on arkham asylum like where uh, where are you at with it like did you did it have the same impact to you as someone who was only kind of like more you know casually familiar with batman lore yeah, absolutely. And we've spoken about on this podcast before, like we saw like a weird little early snippet at some weird future event. And I remember thinking, eh, you know, th- this this looks just like a very shiny brawler, you know, in, in this kind of linear environment. And actually the whole kind of like metroid element of it I absolutely loved. I probably like, I, you know, I like Batman enough that I could appreciate a lot of the references, but I probably appreciate it more as just a you know a 3d action adventure game you know exploring that environment the way it kind of opened up with the power you know the the more bits of equipment going back to it i love the the kind of collectibles side of it with the riddler i think like across the whole series i think that riddler stuff Hmm. remains like one of the most kind of compelling like versions of the collectible quest like very few games have that kind of hook to hang it on mm-hmm. and it's you know it's it's just so brilliantly done um technically astounding um i think it really holds up as well i went back and um replayed a big chunk of it earlier this year and you know it was still still pretty tight game you know it's you know even in light of like the other ones being a bit more ambitious and a bit more open you can still really really enjoy asylum Tomo, did you um, revisit this one a few years ago when Return to Arkham came out? I must admit, I've been sort of YouTube stalking some of your old videos, <laughs> and um, I watched the one that you made with um, Lucy, kind of like kind of doing what we're doing in this episode and ranking them. And um, yeah. the funniest thing from that video is when you're asked, "What will you see when you're hit with a scarecrow's uh, toxin? What was, what's the thing you fear the most?" You answered with mathematics, which <laughs> I thought was uh, I thought was great. But um, yeah, I suppose like. <laughs> So yeah, I like Asylum. Like, um, yeah, I suppose. Have you revisited it recently? Yeah, I I, I play these games yearly at this point. Um, wow, I, which is kind of way easier now that the uh, the collections are out. Um, at the very least, like Origins is 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 one of my Christmas games. I usually play that over the break, um, just because of the setting is around the same time. But yeah, they they hold up remarkably well. I think they all fantastic games i think every time i play them i feel like the the really fascinating thing about them is they all present something different that um somehow is also very cohesive when you're done with the entire thing like um asylum is a way more like linear almost focused experience than the others but um it very naturally segues into the open world of city and that feels amazing, especially when you play them back to back. I usually go through like one after the other and going from the confines of Asylum into into the open world of City is like it's a really, really rewarding feeling to have that newfound freedom. And for me, City is the best one just because it, it nails the feeling of being Batman better than any of the others. Um, and I love that game. And it's a game that I 
often fire up just to fly around not to do any quests or play through it i'll just fly around just because i enjoyed like being in that place and having control of batman as he's gliding around and then the way that escalates in night to like this explosive conclusion it really works for me i know a lot of people don't really like it but um the batmobile being a specific point of contention but i really love the batmobile in the scenarios where you're not forced to use it in the open world where you treat it as like a complementary tool in your massive arsenal, I think it works so well for zipping around and like, you know, using it as like the, the flourish on a combat sequence. When it does force you into like, you know, hey, you need to race on this course or chase Firefly, it kind of starts to unravel a bit. But thankfully, there's, there's not as much of that as you might imagine or even remember. I was quite surprised at how little it, there is actually. But I feel like that the night has a really really incredible um narrative conceit with with the whole uh joker in your head um thing and you slowly morphing into something else and then the multiple dnas of you know joker knocking about and how that impacts the city and the villains within it um i think yeah overall like matt said like they, they all hold up fantastically well and i think each of them is distinct in its own in their own way um that makes playing them over and over again rewarding but also experiencing them back to back really rewarding yeah um so i was really curious about this opening up aspect actually because i always felt that you needed gotham and the batmobile to complete the batman simulation but Hmm. it seemed like the more open they got the more contentious these games got maybe with people who weren't as like big into the batman side as i was and um yeah, I was curious. Uh, do you think there's there is part of that tomorrow where it's like if you love the character, you feel like you need to see that stuff, but maybe people who aren't as tuned into Batman are more content with the idea of like a linear experience, a more contained experience. Yeah, I I kind of I think like the 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 big discussion is like is night bad, right? Like I don't think there's anyone saying asylum is bad or anyone saying city is bad. Like the mm. conversation is either which one's the best? And which one is is night bad or good? And I think a lot of that comes from like the fandom that quickly springs up around it or sprung up around it. And I feel like it happens with a lot of games. Like when something new comes along and it's like a breath of fresh air and then it's something like that you know is special, there's a significant portion of the fans around it that galvanize in a way that starts to feel like slightly toxic and slightly like they quickly establish this sense of ownership over it where they they need to feel like they are the the gatekeepers of that experience and they know the best for it it happens with like a lot of souls games it happens a lot of like um uh battle royale games and sometimes with rpgs and i think when that happens developers are kind of in this really awful position where the those people are the passion the most passionate people around their game but they're also the people that feel like everything that you do or change, every change that you make is wrong and they know better. Mm. That's kind of just part of fandom, I think, in a lot of ways. I think the average person is going to play a Batman game regardless and, and like their gripes will be like, oh, I prefer the other one and that's about it. Whereas the people who really love it are going to be like, no, this is bad, the Batmobile sucks because xyz and the game makes you do it like this and this is why it sucks and i think that's where a lot of that comes from 
I personally mm-hmm. am of the opinion that these are three exceptional games. And I think they all do interesting things in their own right. And I don't, I would never describe any of them as bad. Even adding Origins to that mix. Like, I think Origins is a fantastic game. It does things differently and it has definitely got some weak points. But fundamentally, all four of those Batman games are fantastic. Mm. Matthew, how do you feel about that opening up that occurs across the series? Is it, um, is it a bit more, how did you find it as, um, as the scope of those games increased? Yeah, I, I can remember, I, it took me a while to kind of click with City. Like, I never really got a feel for it as a place because it's, you know, it, it's so sort of densely designed. You know, it's not a massive space, but it's very sort of tangled and intricate and I never really got a read on it. I never really felt like I, I mastered it. And also just the kind of, um, I guess, the sort of setup of that game with the the whole idea of it being taken over and all these criminals everywhere. You know, it feels like quite an artificial, like, weird space you know i do love that you know you get to do all the batman stuff and it is really freeing to fly around it but it definitely took me a while to kind of like click into it and find the right rhythm you know i like that it had introduced sort of villains as side quests i thought was was really great you know the mm. idea that you didn't just have to meet everything on the central quest line that you know this is a world where there's these really iconic people who are kind of lurking just just off to the side and you can kind of engage with that if you want and you know, it's really rewarding to follow a side quest line and to have like a proper juicy villain at the end of it, rather than just some generic goon or whatever. Yeah, I really liked it. I, I like. I'm, I'm actually, I'm the biggest fan of Knight. Is my favourite of the three. Hmm. Um, part of that's the next gen like wow factor of it. Like it's hmm. still like one of the best looking games. I think. Um, yeah. It does some amazing, like, really showing off tricks where, like, he throws the batarang and it follows it, like, out into the sky and then you mm. look at the city and then it comes back and all, all this kind of stuff. And I love the the kind of the cinematic elements where you kind of had, like, the first-person perspective or you played as other characters and witnessed things from other perspectives. Like, it's really satisfyingly told. I even like the Batmobile because I'm a freak. Um, <laughs> well, I just th- I think that they found a version of the Batmobile which kind of fit their combat system. You know, like the hand-to-hand combat, I think the Batmobile is very fair in terms of, like, you can see what everything, where things are going to attack, and it, it gives you all the information to deal with the situation, which is kind of what the combat does so brilliantly as well. Maybe a bit, you know, obviously more repetitive than that, but I, I thought it was it was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, I love Knight. I love the, 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 that scary bit where the monster jumps out as well. <laughs> Oh yeah, man bat. Yeah. Man bat. <laughs> that was so good. Like such a like a like a just this big scare hidden in an open world like that. Wow, that was yeah. really cool. I think uh, something you pointed out in that video tomorrow is the idea that the storytelling is quite sophisticated in Arkham Knight, and not just when it comes to the main story, but in terms of how those side quests are presented. Do you, um, I, I suppose like I, I want to ask you about that side of things. Like um, I feel like they really got to grips with how to do those character-based side quests in Arkham Knight, and it's almost a shame they didn't make another one after that where they could kind of mm. go even further with it. But um, yeah, I guess like of those side quests, which what's the kind of highlight for you out of Arkham Knight? I, I really like the man bat stuff in that one. Like it was, it was a slow burn, and it it comes back to me being a huge fan of the animated series because I believe season one early animated series stuff is. I think it might even be the first two episodes is Man Bat, and it has that same. It's got a very it, it it kind of like wraps up the time with the game franchise in a way that really hits for me because those 
that arc in the animated series is what kind of made me fall in love with that character. So that holds a special place for me. And it hits the stuff that I really like about Batman from different angles. It's definitely got like the action part of it, but it's more of a cerebral and kind of investigative uh, quest line where you're figuring out what's going on with this this uh, scientist, his his wife and this weird creature that keeps appearing. And the fact that it also kind of weaves itself very naturally into the world where, you know, you're just off doing something and then man bat, you can just see him floating around, um, just, you know, circling a building and you're like, okay, I'm going to go and take him down and you just pin him to the ground. It's a small chase and then, you know, you try and take some blood or give him a serum or something like that. Um, and the way that kind of builds over the course of multiple hours and eventually kind of has this payoff at the end. I think that's one of my favorites um, of the entire franchise, if I'm honest. I really like that Man Bat stuff. For sure. I was a huge fan of how they incorporated the Bat Family stuff into Welcome Night mm. as well. Just the um, Nightwing and Robin sequences. I think what I've always loved about Rocksteady's writing is that they they treat the universe as if it already exists. I mean, you know, you, you see in Arkham Asylum through the Scarecrow sequences, the uh, origin story of Bruce Wayne, but obviously the joke people always make is how many times can they show Batman's parents being killed? Mm. And this, these games operate under the basis that, no, that that's already happened. This is a Batman at the top of his game. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that that kind of comes across in how familiar, that, you know, Bruce is with um, with Dick Grayson and Tim Drake and stuff. And, um, yeah, I just thought that was really sophisticated too. Yeah. I was going to ask actually in like the wider Batman community, how how do people like do people rate the, the Arkham games uh, uh, like their representation of Batman like as as writing? I I think they honestly like I don't have enough engagement with the wider Batman community to to really get a feel for it. But the stuff that I've read is like I think they're they're thought of quite highly in terms of the the way their characters are written and. I think the the thing that helps is there was a line of comics that were based on the games themselves that were also very well received. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, they were like companion comics that were pretty good and they started off kind of like existing parallel and then they filled in some stuff while the games were in development. And in the same way that the Injustice comics turned out to be very, very, very popular. Um, I, if I remember correctly, those comics, that they definitely made people more interested in Rocksteady's universe. Um, mm. And I don't remember there being much like dislike of, 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 uh, of the entire thing anyway. Yeah. I think like playing stuff like Marvel's Avengers, you know, not to dunk on that game too much because that's um, all that ever happens when people talk about that game is dunking on it. But I think that mm. Rocksteady makes it look easy to build, you know, to put that universe on screen. And it definitely isn't. Like, there's, there are tons of ways you can get it wrong. And they're working with some quite wild stuff. I mean, one of the reasons I love Arkham Knight 2 is it features uh, Professor Pig, who is a Grant Morrison yeah. creation. But Rocksteady were like, yep, we read Batman comics. That that dude's going in our game, you know, four <laughs> years later. He's really fucked up. <laughs> but it was an, a, an amazing sequence. Um, so, yeah, I think it's got real credibility, Matthew, when it comes to hmm. comes to those readers. Um all right, to what I, I want to ask you about Origins then, because you, you allude there that you kind of like it. Do you think it's a little bit underrated versus the other games? Oh, yeah, I think I definitely think it's underrated. I feel like a lot of people just wrote it off because of the developer. Um, but I, I feel like it's got some really, really smart moments in it. And I think it's got like a... It leans harder into the, the detective part of being Batman than the others do for sure, because it has that whole crime scene reconstruction mechanic as one of the central pillars and it leans on that quite heavily but i also think that it's 
it's like a really it feels a lot like year one where it's like a scrappier story and it's got a lot of rough edges but i feel like ultimately it comes together in a good way and they also in the same way that you mentioned about rocksteady you know flexing to show that they know comics wb montreal does the same thing in that and does it with like its use of villains like one of my favorite moments is the electrocutioner fight um the first time it happens where it lasts about three seconds because <laughs> batman just clocks him straight in the face and he's a low-tier villain and but it does the whole bravado sequence where they they're like presenting it as if it's going to be a big deal and then he just sucker punches him right in the face and takes him out immediately and that leads into the Deathstroke fight instead. And like that is just them winking at Batman's fans going, we know this guy's a, a trash tier villain, so we're not going to waste your time with it. And like there's so much of that. And I feel like Troy Baker as as like Joker, like hard, Mark Hamill is a hard act to follow. But Troy Baker really, really does a great job. Um, and Roger Craig Smith as, as like a younger Bruce Bruce Wayne. I think I think that that whole story is also very good like it's it's a little more i feel like it's darker than the others Mm. with the whole like joker just blowing stuff up and the black mask stuff um i i i think it's interesting as a game enough for me to keep coming back to it and finding every time i come back to it i find something new and and like surprising about about it or a new way to appreciate it so i definitely feel like it's underrated that's cool i think it taps into like you say that year one thing of like a city that's going from being a sort of traditional gangland city to the fucked up weird batman universe gotham city which is um yeah such a great sort of like um thing that uh they do in those books but um matthew do you have any thoughts on origins i was curious um i don't think we talked about this one on the podcast before yeah i yeah, I, I like I, I liked it enough. I, I felt like I felt like it didn't like move things forward much mm. in the way that Rocksteady ha- had with City and then would with Night. You know, it felt it felt kind of it, what I remember from it is basically everything from from City again. You know, kind of slightly remixed. Um, I like the assassin setup that all these people are like hunting him and that, i think that's quite fun city's a bit em- a bit empty also I, I felt like they weren't as good at like the sort of the slightly metroidy element of it like the, the backtracking and the kind of picking it apart maybe that's just bad memory and i just didn't dig into it too much but i just i remember like the, the like the interior levels being the sort of dungeony sort of areas or whatever you're calling them being like a bit more a, a bit more linear, a bit more simplified mm. than the others, which is something I like about the other games. Is is that element to it? But like, I definitely, di- I definitely didn't hate it. I think I played it on on Wii U. Was it on Wii U? I think yeah, it was. I think you got Electric yeah. Fists on Wii U. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a like an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what brilliant! That's what Batman <laughs> needs. Uh, <laughs> thank God. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I definitely don't hate. I definitely don't hate it. It's probably something I should revisit because I I don't replay this every year. So <laughs> I think it's tough because I mean those Rocksteady games in terms of how they progressed had such momentum that like you know if you compare it to something like Assassin's Creed where it's fairly stayed between um, between entries and then like there's like one big revolution every six to seven years. These games were like okay, he's gone from a small location to a city. He's gone from a city to like an actual city with a Batmobile, and like <laughs> they progress so quickly. All that happened within a six-year period, like an absurd. It's just absurd. 
But um, yeah. yeah, tough for Origins, and also it released right between the generation gap as the PS4 came out, so probably felt like more of an also ran than it deserved to. Do you think that's fair to more? Yeah, I, I think so. And like it came at a time where I think a lot of people were very precious about the fact that Rocksteady weren't making it, and mm-hmm. and like and no one should touch Batman unless they're 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 Rocksteady, and I think that really didn't help them. I think Blackgate also didn't help the PS. P game, which was made by Armature, which was like, here's another studio working in the Batman franchise with a similar art style and maybe even in the same universe. And that one was a bit rough going, despite the fact that Armature were supposed to be a big deal. Mm. So yeah, I I feel like, yeah, I I think so, yeah. I guess then to wrap up, so what are like our personal rankings of the series? So I've got, number four I've got Origins, number three I've got... uh, (laughs) I've got Asylum, which I feel bad saying. Number two, I've got Night, and number one, I've got uh, City. So, uh, Tamor, what did you? What, what's your top four? Uh, I think mine are okay. Let me think. I think mine is City, mm-hmm. Asylum, Night, Origins. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, well, so Origins is your favourite of the four. No, no, no. That oh, was wait, that no, was no, one no. to bottom. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that was like wow, that is bold. <laughs> <laughs> number one, <laughs> number one is City. Number two is uh, Asylum. Number three is not. Right. Number four is Origins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that makes more sense. Yeah, that's good. And Matthew, how about you? Yeah, I'll start for Origins. I'd actually probably go Origins, City, Asylum, Night. Mm. Interesting. But See. that might... I just like the flashy graphics of Night. Uh, it, you know, you can't underestimate what a pull that is. The game does still look phenomenal um, all these years later. I say all these years later, I mean six. Six years. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, um, thanks so much for joining us tomorrow to talk about uh, the um, the series. Uh, where can people find you on uh, social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at tomorrowh. I'm Honestly, it's probably not worth it. I'm just tweeting nonsense most of the time. I, tw- I treat Twitter like a room I walk into, fart in, and then leave. Um, I just leave other people to just sniff what's going on. Um, I feel like that's the healthy approach for me. So if you if you want some of that action, you can find me there at Tomorrow H. That's, uh, that's very poetic. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you uh, if you want to watch me stream, you can go to twitch.tv forward slash Tomorrow H. Otherwise, check out my work on Gamespot and Giant Bomb and kind of funny everywhere. everywhere. You're everywhere, everywhere. man. Ma- Matthew, where can people find you on Twitter? Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Um, I'm Samuel. I was just going to say my tweets aren't like farts. They're they're I put a lot of effort into them. And, you know, it's like hanging out with me in a room. It's nice. <laughs> uh, Tamor's tweets are better than he's um, given them credit for there. And <laughs> people can keep up with uh, when you're streaming on Twitter and stuff as well. But um, I nonetheless like the uh, fart room comparison. Um, I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. If you'd like to follow the podcast, it's Backpage Pod. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Thanks.